Police announced today they found a body they believe to be Samantha Koenigs in Matanuska Lake out in the valley. In this episode of Suspect Zero, the case of Israel Keys. Welcome to episode one of Suspect Zero, where we not only discuss unsolved cases, but serial killers whose crimes are lesser known or virtually unknown, yet the most terrifying. I'm Dawn Washburn, and joining me is my co-host, Dr. Michael Arntfield. Hello, Michael. Hey, Dawn. Good to see you, as always. Good to see you, as well. We've got an especially, I think, riveting case and offender to discuss this week. I, I agree. This is an anomaly of sorts. A singularity, they called him, yes. Yeah, he, he's a quite an interesting character. So when I was thinking about this case, I started mulling over some questions about it. Um, so I came up with some things to talk to you about today. When does a person realize who they are? At what age do they validate whether they're gay or straight, a loner or a socialite, a geek or a jock? Are they predisposed to certain tendencies such as violence, rage, or even aggression? When does a person realize they're different? It's 1992, and young Israel Keys has a friend over for a few days. The two decide to wander into the woods, but before they go, Keys decides to bring the family cat, a mischievous cat, that gets into the garbage a lot. Once they reach their destination, Keyes thinks it would be fun to hang the family cat from a tree and shoot it in the stomach. As he's laughing at the situation, he turns to the other boy and notices that he's throwing up and visibly upset. It's at this moment that Israel, at the age of 14, realizes he's different from his peers. That was the last time anyone has ever gone into the woods with me, Keyes stated in an interrogation room. He makes the realization that if he's going to kill and fulfill his need to kill, it would need to be done through a separate life. Israel Keys will become two different people, one that society deems as normal and one that will terrorize them for years to come. This episode will focus on Israel Keys, an American serial killer, rapist, necrophile, arsonist, burglar, and bank robber. He admitted to violent crimes as early as 1996 with the violent sexual assault of a teenage girl in Oregon in a spree that lasted pretty much until his capture in 2012. So... I'm, I'm passing the torch to you now, Michael. Um, you know, I don't have the answers to these questions clearly, but I'm sure that people think about this when they think about someone and their decision to kill. So it's not technically a decision. I mean, if you hear the way that he, you know, at the age of 14 thinks this is normal activity and then realizes that the other boy is not handling it the same way, it's at that moment he realizes, uh, I think I'm different. Yeah, and that's, I mean, 14 is comparatively late for a few reasons with keys. So often offenders will um, begin exploring, and we've talked about this in other episodes, be- begin exploring and indulging certain fantasies that take hold when they sort of become uh, sexually self-aware, which there's no single age, it's gonna, that's going to vary by individual. But often we see the, these paraphilias begin to take hold, you know, 10, 11, 12, um, and earlier in some cases, 8, 9 even. And it doesn't take too long before, again, um, the inherent deviance of these practices becomes known to the individual and they, they learn how to, how to cover their tracks. Um, and this could be something as simple as, you know, um, deleting a browser history or, or ensuring if you're going to do something especially weird in your room, no one's home. And 
uh, in Keyes's case, he has sort of this delayed onset of um, this awakening because he grew up in relative isolation. His, his, his parents were really sort of flavor of the week, uh, religious zealots that floated cult to cult. I mean, they, they started sort of uh, with, you know, some Mormon and Amish groups and ended up into some, you know, radical right-wing neo-Nazi Christian fundamentalist groups. And so he, he, he didn't really have any peers and he, and he had a large family of siblings and a, a father that was suspected to be abusive. So he really didn't have this reflectivity, this, this, um, this social, not engineering, but sort of this, he wasn't properly socialized to the point that, yeah, he ever actually saw a visceral reaction of somebody to the things he said and did. So it was that, at that moment, that this uh, alter ego really crystallized, which for a lot of offenders is is much earlier. Alter, alter ego is a great way yeah. to put it because you know when I was reading about him, I that's initially what I thought because people would say they couldn't even believe he would be at the barbecues. He would be it would be so normal. Actually, he was he was in um he was doing construction at a house, and I remember looking at it and saying, "Oh my god, he looks like a friend of ours." You know, he literally does. Like the whole thing, like he could show up at your house to do some construction, and nobody would even know the wiser. But he lived these two lives, and he lived them well. Israel Keys was born in Cove, Utah, on January seventh, nineteen seventy-eight. He's the second of ten children born to Heidi and John Jeffrey Keys, a couple who didn't believe in government interference, public schools, or modern medicine. They lived an isolated existence in the woods. In July 1998, Keyes joined the U.S. Army. He did well as a soldier, and after his discharge in July 2001, he lived with the mother of his daughter and then later moved to Alaska after that relationship fell apart. As a serial killer, his crimes included detailed planning. Keyes traveled the country to hide murder equipment that consisted of guns, ammunition, and chemicals to use on his victims. When he wanted to kill, Keyes would dig up one of his kill kits. Keyes is thought to have killed at least 11 people, though the actual number is likely far greater. Yet only three of Keyes' victims have been definitively identified, including his final victim, Samantha Koenig, an Anchorage barista who was abducted by Keyes on February 1st, 2012. Keyes raped and killed her within hours, then weeks later dismembered her body and dropped the pieces into a lake north of Anchorage. After being arrested in Texas for the murder of Koenig, Keyes was flown back to Alaska by authorities and later committed suicide in his Anchorage jail cell on the night of December 1st, 2012. He managed to slit his wrists and strangle himself to death at the same time, leaving skulls and satanic imagery written in his own blood on the wall of his cell before he died. It, it took until he was 14, 15 to realize that he was different. And then he made up for lost time and very quickly, uh, and this is, psychopaths have uh, what we call a fast life history, meaning they, they, they tend to aggressively and voraciously pursue experiences as quickly as possible with the expectation that they, they don't plan necessarily on, on living a long time. And they wanna maximize the breadth of experiences and intensity, and that's a term I'm gonna come back to later. Um, while they're young and they have, you know, they're attractive and strong and, and agile and versatile, and they don't really care. They'll find new ways of indulging it if they, they, they get to be a ripe old age. But for now, they want to absolutely consume uh, as much as possible, including other people. And, and he really built his life around doing that. 
he realized after you mentioned, you know, the, the mutilation and, and torturing of this cat, uh, that he was different and he began researching other people like him. So he knew a lot about other serial killers and there's, there's two books that he really homeschooled himself uh, through in order how to be the most optimal uh, serial killer. And one is a nonfiction book by former FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood called Dark Dreams. So um, most people know uh, John Douglas and Bob Ressler, uh, especially if you watch Mindhunter on Netflix. But Roy Hazelwood was a, a, a mild-mannered, um, sort of less publicity-seeking, very smart um, profiler who specialized in sexual homicides. And he wrote this book, Dark Dreams, that is just basically a, uh, a telling of the most bizarre and disturbing cases of, of his career and what we can learn from them. And Keyes read this because he was fascinated by these other case studies. He knew he was a, a sexual predator um, and very dangerous. And he wanted to read about people who had been careless enough to get caught. And the, the other book that he read uh, was published in the early 90s by uh, acclaimed author Dean Koontz. And this is a fictional book called Intensity about, a, again, a double life leading cop who is a nomadic interstate sexual sadist and serial killer and necrophile. And while it's a work of fiction, it's an extraordinarily detailed depiction of uh, who Keyes would go on to become, which is someone who wants to live with intensity. There is no good or bad experience. He, life is a zero-sum game unless you are pursuing every deviant hedonistic pleasure possible, including the pain and, and, and and suffering of other people, which is what really excited him. And that's why Roy Hazelwood's book is the, the tie, Dark Dreams is such a interesting tie into Keys because Hazelwood was the first expert to say there's two types of sex offenders that can never be corrected or rehabilitated. Uh, one is uh, child molesters, um, which is different from pedophiles, and we can get to that later if we have time, but all child molesters are pedophiles, not all pedophiles are child molesters. Um, and then sexual sadists. And he basically said, if, those, if that is your hard wiring, you're either into to kids, especially when they go together. If you're into kids uh, or you're into, to be aroused, someone needs to be terrified, humiliated, in pain, uh, or, or just eviscerated and mutilated, you're not gonna, you can't unring that bell. If that's who you are, uh, all of the sort of talk therapy and art therapy and, and medications in the world aren't going to help you uh, then become a, a sexually functional, respectful person. And the irony about him is that he, you know, was able to live these because you, you, you normally think that a serial killer has absolutely no emotion. Like they go, I would think that if I was married to one, right, who was keeping a double life, that I, I picture, what I picture is that he has absolutely no emotion. Like, I, am I ever even going to reach him? Like, if I'm crying about a fight we had, does he really care? You know, so I, I, those things run through. But then you see where he does protect his family. He does want to protect them from, you know, even his mother. He's like, she's going to take a heart attack when she hears all of this. You know, there was a side of him who wanted to be outed and, and be and, and have his crimes be publicized so he can get the recognition for it. And then there was the flip side of him where he wanted to protect his daughter. He, he literally said, I don't want to be, I don't want her to Google my name and see what I've done. So I found that to be interesting about him that he did have some kind of conscience, you know, um, maybe not with his victims, but with, with 
with his family who ultimately will become victims as well. But, you know, so I found that to be something that was interesting about him and his nomadic way. You did. I didn't really think about this, but you did say they don't think that they're, they're going to live a long life. And I really, I always saw them as narcissists who thought they were going to get away with it until the end. But he also studied um, interrogations, investigations. He studied that so that he would know how to cover his trails. And then those those kill kits, he had those murder kits placed all over the, all over the country. Yeah. So I mean, this is what's so fundamentally terrifying about this guy is. So he moves to Alaska eventually, as, as many people looking to, to get off the grid do, and he operates a small construction and renovation company. But he uses Alaska. So there's been a lot of nomadic interstate serial killers, um, you know, that we've discussed already on this right. show. But never do I know of or have I heard of a serial killer who actually books flights Right. to random cities with the view to committing murder holidays. I mean, so he, he would hop on a flight, for instance, to Boston under the pretext of going to visit family, rent a car in Boston, and as you said, go purchase a bunch of, um, you know, uh, torture and murder instruments, uh, put them into a Home Depot bucket, bury the bucket, and that would be phase one of the trip, and then he'd go back. The idea being that he would never be traveling, doing all this at right. once. When he goes, when he flew back to that area, he would dig up the kit and 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 go hunting. And he selected people at random. One of his his victims, where he was just in the mood, as many sadists are, they don't have a, a particular type. It could be all right. ages, all genders. Uh, but he wanted a middle-aged married couple and basically uh, to, to torture, murder, and mutilate them both and have them watch each other. So he picked this house. He was driving around. He had picked up his kill kit after flying back to New England and um, from his construction experience selected this house because of the design of the garage. And he knew that he he'd repaired doors like this before and he knew that the man door from the attached garage would be easily breached. And... Um, those bodies have never been found because he disposed of them in a vacant house that was later torn down and their skeletons are, are in a landfill somewhere. Um, so this is what's truly terrifying is he's, he's, he's not just roaming the highways. He's, he's booking vacations, uh, buying supplies and uh, striking in as many different places in as many different ways as, as possible. And, and this was all by design including relocating to Alaska. He was caught, and we'll, we'll talk about how he was caught, because and, and, that's just a fascinating story as well. But he talked with an army buddy when he was in the military, and again, some of these cracks and fissures started to show. Most people thought, you know, he was just a, a straight-laced, order-following, run-of-the-mill GI, whereas, you know, some other people saw and heard some things that disturbed them for years, including he told one... Uh, of his fellow soldiers that he had basically, when he, he got out of the military and returned to civilian life, he had two plans. He had his short-term plan and then his long-term plan. Mm -hmm. So his short-term plan is to commit what he called mass kidnappings. And this is ultimately what got him, him caught. The idea was he wanted to kidnap four or five people a month, keep them in separate places, uh, again, all ages. So teenage girls, older men, um, you know, middle-aged professionals, 
and ransom them for reasonable amounts that a family would pay or will have the ability to pay. So not millions and millions of dollars, but you know, five or $10,000 and come up with a reason why these people were abducted and use their phones to communicate with their families. Uh, that minimizes the likelihood of the police or FBI being involved. It maximizes the, the likelihood of people paying quickly. So he could make $50,000 a month and his intent was to, to torture and kill all these people. But in the meantime, They'd be in different states and different cities and the dots would never be connected. connected. So he would make his yeah. money indulging in his twisted fantasies uh, that way and make a lot of money. But then his big plan, as he called it, and this is why not a lot of people know about this case. His big plan involved some rural properties, some rundown you know, barns and shacks that he had throughout the U.S. And... When he was finally arrested uh, for the murder in Alaska, which is the only known killing to, that he committed in his home state as an adult, um, the FBI and ATF got onto him and they searched these properties and whatever was in there made Israel Keyes a uh, individual of national security interest and that remains classified. So while he's wow. kidnapping, torturing and murdering wow. in the short term, whatever his big plan was, was a threat to national security. So we're talking about a sadist who is ultimately wow. genocidal. And whether it was a dirty bomb uh, or, or some kind of other uh, series of explosives, his idea was to ultimately just destroy as many people in as many different places as possible. And because uh, his murders are, are loosely connected to that classified component that is, again, a national security threat, there hasn't been a lot that the press have been able to get on him because a lot of it is classified or redacted. Wow, wow. Do you think that that, do you think that that was spurred from when he took Samantha Koenig, the barista from her, you know, because that, that was a case that really came out. The dad was fighting hard for that. And, um, you know, but when, when he took her and, and he brought her to this, sh ironically, I mean, he brings her to a shed outside of his house where his girlfriend and daughter are like no one. He I mean, I, I don't want to. But no one hears anything. I mean, I well, I guess he played the music. But where is he? Don't you come out and check on your like, what do you do? You know, nobody's checking on him. But he, he brings her to the shed and and just really does horrific things to her um, and then comes back, braids her hair sets her up like she's alive to get money from the family and the family immediately notices she never braids her hair her hair is never like that you know and and, and that triggered a little bit more of a right i mean do you think that had a lot to do with like the, the beginnings that was the he was that was his attempt to begin initializing so he had already been working on whatever his big plan was and that's okay. why uh, whatever they found. So he'd been amassing some kind of uh, weapons of mass destruction in these in these rural properties. But yeah, Samantha Koenig, this is his first at attempt to actually then kickstart his short-term plan with these these mass kidnappings in different places. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the details of that case are so disturbing. Here's a young girl, she's working as a barista at a, a drive-through, they call them coffee huts. So these are small shacks in the middle of nowhere in Alaska that are basically quick drive-through stop-offs for coffee and other drinks for, right. um, you know, people working the highways and loggers and miners or whatever. And uh, they, these girls work alone. Keys had, had scoped and uh, scouted this location, cased the, the shack, knew when she was working, uh, pretends it's a robbery, climbs in through the drive-through window, kidnaps her, and yeah, takes her to an ice fishing hut on his own property, 
uh, repeatedly sexually assaults and, and beats and eventually murders her, leaves the body there, goes on a Caribbean vacation with his family with, yes. the, with the body there, yes. uh, maintains this facade of normalcy the entire time, goes back, uh, realizes the community's looking for her, and yeah, sews her eyes open with fishing line, does her hair, oh, um, props her up with a current newspaper, uh, and then takes a Polaroid as proof of life and tries to ransom the dead body that he continues to have sexual relations with after she's been dead for weeks. Wow. And it's amazing then how he gets caught because he goes on another one of his... Uh, with excursions. Excursions down to uh, Texas with her debit card. And wow. as he's trying to ransom her he's also making small withdrawals using her card and this is ultimately what gets him caught and it's absolutely ingenious how the police the texas rangers figure out based on where these atm withdrawals are where he's going because there's only so many roads and so many atms in, in in east texas and they they leapfrog to the next town where they think he's headed and they they're able to well they're still trying to figure out his his precise movements but i mean it all started with the, the texas rangers sort of as he keeps driving and, and looking for his next victim while still ransoming his last victim uh that he ends up um you know in this dragnet and as we mentioned before i mean this is this is just how nihilistic so he's an absolute sadistic nihilist and as the police begin interrogating him and questioning him about his movements uh, and this is before the discovery of, of whatever his big plan was, this, this mass ev event of mass destruction and, and genocide. Um, he says, listen, I'll cooperate as long as you promise to get me the death penalty and as quickly, right. as, as, quickly as possible. As possible, right. He didn't and, want to stay in jail and he didn't want to deal with it and he didn't, yeah. And if he couldn't live with intensity, like the book that he had sort of modeled, the novel he had modeled his crimes after, and, and, and could not do this, then life just wasn't worth living. So while you think, and while on the surface it looks like, yeah, he has some sentimentality towards his daughter and, and this, this woman right. he was living with, that by all accounts it looks like he was just using, um, really ultimately... the cover. Yeah, it, it, and it's really just about con maintaining control, controlling the narrative. And, and, and he played games with police. He would give up, like the couple I mentioned right. in New England, he, he, he would sort of give little dribs and drabs and, and little details that were very difficult to confirm or corroborate. And then you give a little bit more the next day and maybe change a story. But uh, I mean, ultimately they've corroborated, you know, a dozen or so. And then there's other cases that he's suspected of. There's going to be f far more than, than he was suspected of. And the, the reason why it's thought to be um, 11 or 12 is ultimately they don't, get him the death penalty fast enough or bring it to trial fast enough. Uh, so he commits suicide in his holding cell, cuts his wrists and puts 12 skulls with uh, upside down crosses on them on his jail uh, house wall and says, we are all one now. As though each wow. of these skulls drawn in his own blood was one of his previous victims. I don't put a lot of stock in that. I think he's got much more, including... Yeah. Um, the 2007 Boca Raton mall murders, which are a series of carjacking murders of men, women, and children, mostly women and children, uh, at, an, at an upscale um, mall in Boca Raton, ironically, when Keys was in Florida. And there's a composite of, that was created by police with the help of a survivor, uh, and it looks alarmingly like Keys. And the, wow. the, the killer in this case 
always talked about his kit. I've got my kit. And he brought a kit remarkably similar to the ones so that Keys buried around the country to come back to dig up later so he could use them on people. Wow. Just wow. It, it's a lot to take in. <laughs> it really is. It's a lot to take in. You know, I said to you earlier, he's just, to me, he's just, there's, he was an anomaly of sorts. It's almost, he was an interesting study, I have to say. Like, I'm definitely bringing this to my classroom because this was an interesting, um, you know, we've done a few, but this one, I don't know, this one stood out for me. I don't know why, but it did. Well, be, because he is, uh, and this again, I'm, I'm quoting from the Kuntz book, Intensity. He is... Here, here is someone, people have goals in life, they have dreams. Here is someone who set out from childhood to be a homicidal adventurer, to be a, a, a traveling professional serial killer. And he, he epitomizes that, short of, second only perhaps to some international assassin that you might see in a movie who does this lucratively for, for a living. This is someone who wanted to eventually make money at it through these extortion and, and ransom schemes, but who ultimately his his vocation, his calling in life was to, uh, to torture, rape, and, and murder. And he built his entire business, his entire life, his itinerary, his travel movements, uh, his identity around um, homicidal intensity and exploring new experiences. I mean, before Samantha Conan, we don't know if he had had necrophilic relations with, with any of his victims. I mean, he's clearly aroused by the idea of death. Um, his first suspected victim actually is a, um, is a double amputee young girl who went missing in the, town, in the small town where Keyes was living with the latest sort of um, freak show cult that his, his parents had taken up with. Uh, well, that's never been officially solved, but that's not, that's not a coincidence. And, I mean, he said to the police, you know, for instance, he selected this couple in New England um, whose bodies have never been found because he could tell after casing their house that there was no kids. Yeah. He says he didn't mess with kids, but he's a liar. He it made it more difficult. It made it more. It made it more difficult for him to the dogs, the children, it, and you know, casing someone's. I mean, that it's scary. It's so scary. No one sees him out there. No, they, I mean, they mar the, he's marked that for death. They're, they were marked for death as a result of a seemingly inconsequential design flaw that no one would ever think about. But again, he had schooled himself in doors and windows and tools and tool, new tools that could get him into properties, new tools that could torture people more effectively uh, or that could dispose of bodies. Uh, and while he said, yeah, he didn't mess with kids at the point he was arrested, Certainly, in the Boca Raton case in 07 years earlier, there was a possibility he did. And certainly, as a teen, he did. So, yeah. as he got older and more experienced, he realized, yeah, I, I don't target homes with, with pets or kids because they're not as predictable. The noise can't be controlled. It gets messy. Uh, I, I, I can't maintain the, the discipline that I need, uh, you know, to commit these crimes. But certainly, when he was a more sophomoric killer, uh, and, and closer in age to children and young teens, they would they would have been fair game, no question. Yeah, he he had he had a thing for making sure that the people were um, either left out of the group or somehow wandered off, or you know they weren't. So he, he was smart in the fact that he couldn't. He wouldn't have a witness. He, he he made sure that their witnesses weren't there. And so when he snagged people, even that girl in the woods that he took, and, and actually he didn't kill that one, um, that one got away because she had told him, you know, 
You're like a guy that I, w- I could D, you know, you're handsome. Like, what what are you doing this for? And he said that's one of his major regrets is that he didn't, he had an opportunity and it wasn't about, um, you know, that she would speak. He was upset that that would have been another notch in his belt that he missed out on. Yeah, he, re- he, he regretted not killing her and, and being talked out of it. But again, that was a very early victim. He was a teenager at the time. Right. Um, and this is why a lot of people online are saying, well, he couldn't have been the Boca Raton carjacking killer because um, you know, he never left witnesses. And one of the victims in that case was left to survive. And in fact, no, he left several surviving witnesses. And not only that, robbed several banks. Uh, I mean, this was an extraordinarily versatile what we call criminal versatility. He exhibited it to a T. And this is why we've been talking about this uh, for some time at the Center for Homicide Research, which is one of the think tanks I'm involved with in Minneapolis. And we understand now, uh, I mean, a a lot of bank robbers are are bandits that, uh, you know, haven't thought about more sophisticated ways to to get a lot of money through other scams uh, and, you know, are thrill-seeking cowboys uh like you see in the movies but a lot of them also there is a a sexual motive and uh this was actually learned early on sort of with the violent criminal apprehension program which is the software that tracks similar mo's in different crimes across the united states where there was a bank robber a serial bank robber who um you know changed his mo sometimes it was a note sometimes it was a gun uh but the one common thing to all the crimes was he only robbed female tellers and made them undress before they gave him the money and then people started to think could a bank rob could the money be like in burglary could any financial profit derived from this crime actually be the afterthought and it actually be sexually motivated and we now see with keys and he even admitted this robberies were like an afterglow like so you would have this incredibly intense orgasmic experience torturing and murdering and mutilating somebody but then he would ride that high and he would sort of need just something to pass him over he wasn't ready to 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 kill again yet but this was sort of like foreplay for his next crime and he would he would rob yeah he did say that because sadists he said it was a thrill thing and sadists ultimately are satisfied by creating uh not necessarily pain but suffering and and, suffering. and, and, and fear. So, right. uh, you know, so he didn't make a lot of money off these, these bank heists necessarily, you know, just ca- cash drawer uh, hauls. And he didn't take the vault or anything like that. But, you know, the, the few hundred or few thousand dollars he got was just sort of a, a, a gratuity for the satisfaction he got of, rather than commit some fraud to get that money, that right. you know, like seeing the look of terror in a teller's eyes begging for their lives that's what was ultimately the satisfaction and and in the book the definitive book about keys american predator which is just a, a as i mentioned a, a great read uh there's a story that he admits to the police that uh as he's traveling around uh the lower 48 i mean because who's going to think a, a crime committed in missouri is a contractor in alaska who would flow in there you're going to be looking at all the local uh, you know, usual suspects. Like he, he was, he was that far ahead in terms of um, investigative countermeasures and, and trying to outwit the police. But during these sort of um, excursions, as you call them, Don, he was in Texas and he was casing his bank. 
he was just standing outside looking at this bank thinking this would be a need because he had a very specific criteria for banks that he would target. They would need to be near roads. They would need to be in smaller towns, not big cities. It would have a lot of police close by and sophisticated response uh, procedures. And he's looking at this bank and a complete stranger civilian comes up to him and like starts poking him and just saying, what are you doing? What are you doing here? Who are you? What are you doing looking at this bank? And he then he realizes like, these Texans are no nonsense shit kickers. And (laughs) like this random dad is, has come up to me and just doesn't like the cut of my jib. I can't commit crimes in this, in this state. And it's fascinating that then years later, after the murder of Samantha Koenig, it's traveling through Texas that becomes the, the tipping point for his, his finally being caught. And yeah. they're the ones to get, to get on to him. So wow. this isn't an ode to Texas, but uh, he was that a, a psychopathic, sexual, genocidal sadist was afraid of civilians in Texas enough that he stayed out of that state until his final victim and realized wow. he, he would never try to rob a bank in, in Texas. It's just an interesting. Go inter- Texas. <laughs> it's just an, it, it's so richly ironic. Wow, that is ironic. This has been this has been some story, Michael. I mean, this was one that I really, I I don't know. I got into, <laughs> I really did. I just I don't know. His uh his story is quite interesting. Um, and again, with respect to the victims, because we always say that you know we're not glorifying anything that's been done. It's just studying it and teaching our students what they need to know about people and situations and how not to be a victim. You know, that's by learning a, about it. That's exactly it. And um. The Keys case is important because, as you mentioned, there are so many criminological teaching points. I mean, right. the, whether it be the sexual sadism, the, the growing up in, um, in, in an environment of isolation and religious intolerance and extremism, right. uh, whether it be inter-family sexual abuse. Uh, again, um, the, the psychological profile on this guy is all over the place. and. Uh, just in terms of then the, the investigative methods used from, again, digitally tracking his victims um, and geoprofiling where he's likely to go next based on the, the transactions with his victim's debit card um, to uh, how they interviewed him and how he was ultimately then, from a correctional perspective, able to get a hold of, of, a, of an edge weapon to, to, to slit his wrists. Yeah. And Pencil. Yeah. And so, I mean, he could have just as easily used that on the interrogators or the guards. So, I mean, there's right, there's, right. there's so many professions in and out of the criminal justice system that can learn so much from right. th- this case. And nobody knows about it. And that was the whole basis for the book American Predator, which is that this is the most terrifying, professional, homicidal, adventuring serial killer and would-be terrorist... And you've never heard of him. Right. Anything else on him you want to ask me? Because, I mean, uh, for our listeners and viewers, we do not script this. This is, um, <laughs> this is like the, the serial murder version of, like, Between Two Ferns or whatever that, that, yeah. show, that which show is. Which is why sometimes I'm scrambling. I look yeah. at my stuff. I'm like, oh, my God, I hope I gave the right date to the listeners. <laughs> so if I didn't, it'll be corrected. But... Yeah, I mean, we don't we don't script it. It's kind of just coming off off the top. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and what we research, you know, it's important. So, yeah, I mean, and I mean, I know a lot about these cases because my work involves 
lesser known cold cases and, and using lesser known techniques to try to solve them. And by, by circumstance, then you stumble across these cases as part of my research or our research that uh, involve um, you know, really obscure known offenders that just for whatever reason aren't part of the popular vernacular, aren't household names and should be because... And should be. Be, not because we glorify these people, these, I mean, who are, uh, at the end of the day oh, are, are scumbags and monsters. Yeah, it's, it's right. awareness. It's awareness and it's, uh, especially from an investigative perspective, I mean, if you're a homicide detective anywhere and you read the case of Israel Keys, you need to rethink everything you think you know. So that couple in New England that went missing, uh, now we know... I mean, the case was never solved. Who knows what efforts were being taken? Their, their skeleton mutilated remains are in a landfill somewhere that we'll never know about. I mean, they were disposed of in a vacant house that was sold and then demolished without ever being right. inspected. That was, oh, that was Bill and Lorene Courier, yeah. yeah. Demolished without ever being that. inspected or someone walking through it who would have found them. That I mean, sad. but whoever fielded that missing persons report and eventually declared them, them dead, would you ever in a million years think someone from Alaska flew to Boston, right. rented a car, that was the point. drove for days, dug right. up a kill kit, and then randomly selected their house because of the garage design, and now they're in a landfill somewhere? That was the point. There is no, there is no script to anything anymore as a result of, I mean, this has really been an awakening, I think, for everything we thought we knew about what, a, a term that used to be used, sort of fallen out of vogue, but organized offenders. I mean, so Israel Keys takes that to a whole other level. I mean, booking uh, plane tickets and selecting cities and burying kill kits weeks or months ahead of time and then going back. But to be so specific in victim selection even, that, and versatile. So he's, he's killed teenagers, he's killed, uh, you know, grown women, children, and then his mood of the day is that now I want a middle-aged couple and I want to I want to rape a man and make his wife watch I mean so again we re if you haven't already done so and you're an investigator you need to absolutely rethink the conventional wisdom on victimology on uh, organization on mental rehearsal on um, mobility in terms of um, serial offenders and I mean a case we're going to be talking about uh, in, a, in a couple week a couple weeks uh, I mean is Israel Keys but in multiple countries Jack Unterwerger who was a uh, Austrian um, get this true crime journalist who used his position to travel around wow. Europe and then to the US and kill people as well researching killers so wow. He's thought to have killed in... That's going to be another one. Yeah. yeah. And again, went to the wrong state, not Texas, but I won't spoil it. But his, 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 <laughs> yeah, mistake, his mistake was going to the U.S. where um, uh, he got sloppy. And fortunately, whether it be Keys or Unterwerger, um, even the most organized of serial killers subscribe to what's known as the least effort principle, which means you do something... Time and time again, you ultimately look to reduce the amount of effort that you have to put into it. And fortunately, that means usually they're getting caught. Right. 
he, you know, even you said something before about the um, using the pencil and being in there with the investigators. So it just triggered my memory real quick about, um, you know, his demands. So he was asking for this candy bar and he was asking for um, this Americana cigar and, you know, and his coffee. And so there were some things that were just mainstream. You know, he he was he was mainstreamed as well as what he was doing on the side. And um, the investigators were having a real hard time with with allowing him to control that, um, you know, that those the questioning like he had a lot of power and they were like, oh, we just don't want to give him this power, but we have to or else we're not going to get where to where we need to be, you know, and then he just shut down because he realized the media had had blown it up, which is what he asked not to do. So, you know, so his his ending is, you know, his ending is interesting to say the least. But yeah, he did. He did have that. uh that weapon and was able to use it when when he needed to. I kind I kind of felt like that's something that he would have done if he didn't get the death penalty. It seemed like it would follow suit with him being in control and just being like a big f you to everybody in the end. You know, like you're not getting the info, and I still did what I needed to do the way I wanted to do it. That's right, and I mean, what a lot of people forget is suicidal ideation or suicidal tendencies are. Uh, associated with with psychopaths who are malignant narcissists and and love themselves but they've all it's all ultimately about control and they've all conceptualized you know if, if i can't indulge every day this is how i would probably kill myself because it's it's yeah, yeah exactly and we also know it's associated obviously with necrophiles who are fixated on death all the time so to, to have a necrophile who has not thought repeatedly about um Number one, how to kill themselves, but number two, the experience of death. And that might actually be very exciting for them, which is why right. we, we see sort of, and then you get sort of into, um, you know, the dangerous sort of autoerotic and, 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 and pseudo-suicidal or uh, pseudocidal behavior um, in, in some, of these, some of these guys. So that is not beyond yeah. the, the pale that this is how Israel Keys chose to go out. And that's also why you mentioned, again, um, some degree of... Some of conscience or, or caring for for his daughter i've seen this in other cases where oh you know i want to spare them the the embarrassment or i want to spare them the that's not what it's about it's a, a, again about control that's the last card they can play typically and um it's it, it it really is just it's the only behavior they know and if if it gets mistaken as compassion they don't really care because ultimately only they know why they're making these demands. Right. Well, on that note, I think uh, I think we've wrapped it up and, and hopefully we've, you know, reached an audience that that wants to hear about, you know, how we teach our students and how we reach them, because raising awareness is extremely important. And I think that that's, you know, that's the work we do. All right, Michael, thank you. Always a pleasure doing this podcast with you. Um, see you next time, guys, on Suspect Zero. In the next episode of Suspect Zero, the case of George Waterfield Russell Jr., a.k.a. The Charmer.